Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. A lot can happen in a year. Trends, debuts, world-altering events, and pop culture and film is there to reflect it all back to us generations down the line. I'm your host, Becky Shrimpton, and once again, I'm joined by Cam Maitland and Alicia Fletcher, and this is the A Year in Film podcast, presented by Hollywood Suite. It's safe to say that Stephen King stories, no matter how you consume them, are a horror lover's rite of passage, but King himself doesn't believe he writes horror. He's a suspense writer. Uh, what's the difference, you may ask? Well, let's let Stephen King explain that in his own inimitable way. I think that what I actually write are suspense novels. The purpose of the horror novel is to sort of gross you out. It's a childish thing, the way the humor is. The two things are closely allied. They both elicit, when they work to their best, a, a vocal reaction. It's kind of like... Uh, when you're a kid and you're sitting at the dining room table and you want to get to your to your sister or your brother, you kind of chew up your food and then, ah, you hang your <laughs> mouth open like that. Yes. That's horror. Suspense is a little more high class than that. Regardless of what genre it is or how you feel about his work, it's hard to deny that Stephen King is one of the most prolific and influential writers of the late 20th and early 21st century. By 1982, he'd published several short stories and novels, but had only two feature film adaptations of his work, Brian De Palma's Carrie and Kubrick's The Shining. You know, light, fluffy fare by passable directors. Then in 1983, everyone had an adaptation in the works. Cam, what was your first experience with Stephen King? You know what? Actually, it's it's probably long before I saw his movies or read his books. Uh, I had a babysitter, a longtime one. Uh, shout out to Shelley, uh, who loved Stephen King a lot. Uh, and I think I was curious about horror stuff, but I didn't really like horror much as a kid. It scared me a lot. Uh, but I would ask her the plots of various books that she was reading. I can't remember the first one I read. I think it's kind of around the era of when he and Richard Bachman <laughs> were simultaneously writing uh, novels for each other, his his nom de guerre sort of thing. Do you know why um, he had one of those? Like, Stephen King is such a great horror name. Like, oh, why yeah. you go with Richard Bachman? Uh, it's because uh, what he wanted to write primarily, it's like science fiction stuff. I don't want to bring her up because she's a terrible person, but J.K. Rowling does the same thing. Uh, when she started writing adult mysteries, she got a pseudonym. So that was like his thing. Uh, I believe The Running Man might be the first Richard Bachman novel. Um, but yeah, he just when he was doing slightly different genre exercises, he, he would be Bachman. And then eventually he did a crazy Dark Tower thing where <laughs> Richard Bachman was like another guy. You know, he did a, a what am I thinking of? Chris Gaines. Yeah, Chris Gaines, Garth <laughs> Brooks. <laughs> he, yeah, he and Richard Bachman were two real people and they were uh, in conversation with each other. Eventually I started reading him. Uh, I've read uh, a handful. I think I actually haven't read a ton and I do really enjoy his prose. The biggest point of view, I'd, I'd say that I do enjoy movies based on his work uh, and I tend to seek them out even though they are kind of of wildly varying qualities. Uh, do you guys have a standing relationship with Stephen King? I think 
he's probably other than Roald Dahl, who is more like young adult, although very adult. Um, Stephen King's probably the first author that, as like a a twelve year old, thirteen year old, I knew that I could read. I like I wanted to read all of his books. Stephen King was probably like my first experience of reading so called adult literature. If we call it literature, I don't know. I don't know if we do. I would. Uh, What makes him so accessible? Do you think that everyone's like, yeah, yeah, these stories? I think a lot of it for me was just as someone who was really voraciously devouring film, including a lot of classic film. There's just so many film adaptations with the name Stephen King on them, and obviously we're going to talk about two of them today. That it was, it just felt safe, even though they really scared me. I, I think the first book I read was Salem's Lot. Which Ooh, is uh, yeah, point. that was an early <laughs> probably one. if you're a parent to a 12 or 13 year old, not the best Stephen King to start with. But um, yeah, I started with The Shining, dude. I yeah, hear yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, okay. yeah, probably The Shining followed that. It's like in yeah. the culture, right? The Shining is probably and and Carrie. Like I think I knew the plot of Carrie and The Shining well before I yeah. watched them. And actually, it's worth saying that in 1983 there was also the Salem's Lot TV movie, which was a huge, uh, influential kind of success. Yeah, I also think that there's something to be said that he's kind of, in in a way that I will explain how it appeals to us as well, but he's kind of like king of the baby Mm -hmm. boomers because he's so obsessed with Mm -hmm. pop culture and descriptions of it. And I think in a lot of ways that connects him with the film brats because his horror movies, like the fact that the film brats were all inspired by like, you know, Westerns and French New Wave and whatever, Stephen King is kind of part of a wave of horror authors who are inspired by like 50s horror movies and Lovecraft yeah. and EC Comics. Like it's all, he's kind of processing and becoming, it, it's not quite postmodern, but it's like all of his horror is in conversation with horror culture. Yeah. Well, let's get into that because 1983 is also when Creepshow came out. Like what all came out in 83 yeah. for him that was like the big explosion? Uh, so I think Creepshow yes. is actually 82, yeah, 82, 83. It's kind of a, uh, so that's him doing EC Comics essentially. 1983 is The Dead Zone, uh, Cujo, and Christine and um, are the major film there adaptations. More? There is. There's that. So the Children of the Corn short that isn't Children of the Corn. Oh. Yes. There's also like, I mean, it's worth saying that uh, he was always interested in his books being adapted to film. So 1982 is actually the start of kind of a semi-famous aspect of his work called The Dollar Babies, where he would allow um, students, filmmakers and young filmmakers to adapt any of his work that weren't hmm. bought uh, for $1. <laughs> and that includes, in 1982, the kind of the most famous one because it led to a famous director is Frank Darabont adapted The Woman in the Room into a short film. And, of course, Darabont went on to adapt yeah. things like The Green Mile. He ended up being a major Stephen King adapter. So, yeah, it's a, kind of this interesting thing where he loved his uh, books being made into movies. And pretty much since the start, because, I mean, Carrie came out in 73 as a book, so... It wasn't that long before that was adapted. And we're also talking today about uh, Christine, which was turned into a movie pretty much as it was Mm -hmm. released as a book. He started giving his galleys out. And that's really why 83 is such a big thing is he went from having books released being adapted to now being so famous and adaptable that he would approach producers with the galleys of his book so they could choose what to adapt. It's it's interesting, too, because like if you think about you know, if we say creep show, which we're not going to talk about a lot, is technically 82, but it is released in some markets in 1983. It's also like where you see him kind of want to be 
an actor. Like he's 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 appears in one of the I think one of my favorite oh, shorts yeah. in Creep Show. I'm a huge fan of Creep Show, and you kind of get him as like not he's not just an author. You're starting to get his personality. You're starting to get him as a character actor. You're starting to get him really as this mm-hmm. like presence on screen as well, which is interesting. That then you dive into 1983 and there's four adaptations um, of his of his books. Well, I know his recognizability because he's one of the few authors that I can look and be like, oh, yeah, that's Stephen yeah. King. Like, you know what he looks like, not just from like a posed jacket photo. Yeah. And part of that recognizability is from the American Express ad he did. Do you know me? It's frightening how many novels of suspense I've written. But still, when I'm not recognized, it just kills me. So instead of saying I wrote Carrie, I carry the American Express card. Apparently, no one knew who he was oh. until that point. And as soon as he did the American Express ad, which his wife, Tabitha, uh, was like, don't do it, don't do it. And he's like, but it's so much money. Um, and he, he did it. And then he became instantly recognizable. And that's when, like, the fame really started. Mm-hmm. Like, people stopping him in the street, talking to him, et cetera. Like, that apparently just became intolerable. And, and I mean, it's also worth saying that there's kind of an interesting th- switch over in 1983, where when we talk about all these movies coming out, that pretty much from then on... There was two plus adaptations of his work to this day. That's wild. <laughs> like there, if you include TV movies and shorts and episodes of The Twilight Zone and whatever else, you pretty much. I I don't think a year goes by without one, and f- most years go by with two or three, which is p- pretty wild. Yeah, like nineteen nineteen eighty six is both Maximum Overdrive and Stand by Me, and there might even be a third one. Yeah, yeah, and especially like a, a lot of the more famous shorts. It's pretty crazy. Like, it, and it goes to this day, and it's interesting because you still see these waves. And now that everything's been remade, I mean, Carrie's mm-hmm. been remade three, four times. So it's like, uh, this guy, there's no sign of Stephen King slowing down. But Cam, you mentioned that, like, this is to varying degrees of quality. And I personally believe that uh, King adaptations are at their best when they tap into, like, the really gritty realism of the stories. Like, what's the Mm -hmm. heart of the horror, uh, regardless of whether or not they're supernatural. You know, uh, Stand By Me, all which you just mentioned, uh, Misery, and, of course, my personal favorite... Cujo. Oh, man. (laughs) Which is our first film today. Uh, I love horror. I'm not particularly squeamish. And then I became a parent. And (laughs) re-watching all Mm. of these movies where children are in peril is really challenging for me. And so the re-watch of Cujo was like my own personal hell, but in a good (laughs) way. And just the shifting of perspectives. Because I remember when I first read the book, I was so sad about the dog. And the last line of the book is like, he just wanted to be a good dog and you're like he just wanted to be a good dog and it's like it's the worst right but then you're watching this film and it's like all about the kid and all about the peril and all about d wallace's unbelievable performance which we're going to get into and this is one of stephen king's favorites and weirdly it's one that hasn't yet been remade Mm. although they're talking about it um Mm -hmm. cam what's up with cujo there's a lot of different reasons why stephen king loves this movie i think number one i think he really loves the performance it's unbelievable yes number two this is famously a book he does not super love uh he was deep into addiction when he wrote it. Uh, this is also why he's so prolific at the time. He uh, he was an alcoholic and a cocaine addict, and I think this is specifically the cocaine era, uh, and he says he does not remember uh, writing it. Uh, there's a great chunk of on writing his very good book about uh, how he writes, where he talks about Cujo, and he I think famously at one point, too, so it was like, oh, I don't remember Cujo. And he's and somebody's like, really? Like, you don't remember anything? He's like, it's about a dog. Oh, my God. <laughs> uh, 
but uh, <laughs> he specifically dislikes uh, that in the book, uh, the child mm-hmm. dies uh, and dies in a very sad way where they beat the dog, but the kid dies of dehydration. <laughs> and he says that that is a level of bleakness that he thinks is not necessary. Uh, so that is changed in the film. So he really loves that. But I also think uh, there is something to Cujo where it, like you say, it kind of deals with that realism that is missing in a lot of his film adaptations. I think a lot of what makes Stephen King books work is this very uh, kind of mundane care about the characters and their day-to-day lives and just like what is going on. And I think actually in both of the adaptations we're going to be talking about today, these films take a long time to just set up the normal lives of these characters before the horror stuff yeah, the happens. Yeah, the horror is all like and, in the uh, third act, basically. Yeah, and especially Ugh. Cujo. I mean, Cujo is very weird. I don't weird know, guys. You don't find like... the creeping horror of marital ennui not horrifying. <laughs> yeah, I mean, that the thing I the thing that I like about Cujo, which I think is very realistic, is the fact that it's like this woman is having a bad day to begin with, and then a rabid dog attacks her, uh, and there's no more. That's always a thing that I love and horror because it's just like oh man like can you imagine like having a cold and then a monster (laughs) attacks you like jesus um yeah and i think that that actually makes cujo a more interesting movie uh at the time it was not well liked um it is a movie that was pretty poorly reviewed now did people see this as like a jaws style Mm -hmm. ripoff is that kind of the the feeling because it's again like this killer killer creature going after a family and then there's like this brutal revenge aspect um and i know stephen king wrote it specifically to be a bottle episode like the book is meant Mm -hmm. to be a bottle episode and that's what inspired it is it's just one place one location very limited amount of characters and then just like this horrific situation they then have to deal with bottle means bottle episode i've never heard of this yeah it's when you're stuck in one place good to know it's like those sitcoms where you get trapped on an elevator episode yeah now you know Um, know. you've learned something today alicia listen i i love learning stuff from you guys too um but uh yeah it's i think part of why it didn't work at the time is people see a real tonal indifference between the crazy ending and the kind of Mm day-to-day life but i also think that the the, there was a genre that didn't quite exist yet that now is a lot more popular that most people call survival horror Mm. that is really about setting up a character deeply and then putting that character kind of through hell and you're understanding psychologically where they come from that is what cujo is (laughs) this poor woman yes (laughs) Well, let's talk about the Dee Wallace performance, because that's what really makes this film. And Stephen King has famously said that she should have been nominated for an Oscar for it. And I have this whole like thing about if we make an actor suffer, should they Mm. be nominated for an Oscar? Mm. Like, is that what is that the equivalency? How much pain someone went through, like giving Leonardo DiCaprio his Oscar, right? How much did he suffer for that role? So they give him an award. And Dee Wallace is famous for saying a lot of people hate this movie because of the concept of animal cruelty. We'll say it, even though in, in her opinion, the animals were incredibly well treated and everything was okay. She says it's actually about the ill treatment of Dee Wallace. And she (laughs) went home every single day. She was up at five o'clock in the morning. She was there until like 10, 11 o'clock at night. Back the next morning at five o'clock, she would collapse exhausted. She'd have to go through take after take after take, just racking her body of like, what's the deepest trauma I can deal with? Oh, now I'm dealing with my husband and all this. Like, And you know, if we're talking about that third act, if this is you were talking about body degradation, like she's trapped in a 1980 Ford Pinto, <laughs> which is a car. Like I did a little bit of research 
on cars and Stephen King, because how could you not? And most of that, really, the really scary parts of the film, it's her and her son in a very small two-door car that was kind of like a hatchback. And the Ford Pinto um, had was like a notorious car that had blown up a bunch of times, and there's a lot of lawsuits. And I was interesting, I was listening to an interview with D. Wallace talk about, like, she never, she can't even, like, think about the Ford Pinto. It's so traumatic for her. It wasn't the dog <laughs> yeah. or the puppets that they used. It was having to film that many takes in the heat. Like it was extremely hot when they were filming in California. Like being in a Ford Pinto and like having to do that day after day after day. And I think this might be the film that finally like killed the Ford Pinto. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And I mean it's worth saying that she uh she says she suffered adrenal failure yeah. from uh acting so hard that she was it's, it's so tense for so long uh that yeah now she has like permanent adrenal fatigue yeah. where she needs to like medicate herself and now that i think about it I'm, I'm totally wrong so in the film it's a heat wave and yeah but they're cold was, right they filmed, in real life yeah, they filmed yeah. like in spring it was freezing and so they're all like wearing you know tank tops and they've stripped down and and yeah, she was just like so cold trying to act terrified and hot. And yeah. I can't even like wrap my head around that with a child too. Like obviously not her own yeah. child, but as someone who's probably a very empathetic person, like her her co-star is a very young boy. And I, I can't uh, imagine. Danny Pintaro. Let's uh, let's talk about <sighs> him and that and that performance because the kid has a seizure and that's what seizures look like. Like yeah. it's yeah. really yeah. accurate and really it's it's just devastating <laughs> to watch. At one point I had to pause and just be like, it's only a movie. It's only a movie, which I haven't had to yeah. do since I was 12. So... <laughs> And I mean, it's also funny that we are ta- like, this is the kid from Who's the Boss? Oh, yeah. That's, uh, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, it's it's a kind of a weird, this is like, you can, uh, I actually wrote up a thing about Cujo for Hollywood Suite, which you can read if you want. But I feel like my uh, my take on this film is that I feel like it's a very good uh, kind of depiction of like the emotional labor of motherhood mm-hmm. because she's both dealing with her stupid husband who is deep in a uh, Frankenberry style scandal about uh, yeah he works for an advertising agency and there's some sort of scandal involving the cereal that he designed the campaign for it's almost like a Mandy-esque yeah. weird moment where you yeah. watch these commercials with this like person that doesn't exist like in Mandy it's a puppet the macaroni and cheese puppet which but, yeah. uh, wouldn't actually affect the advertising agency no, in the real it world no it sense. would be all yeah it makes no. No sense. well I mean I guess you'd pull it but but it's based if you guys didn't know based on a real scandal mm. where Frank oh and Barry uh dyed your poop red oh my god uh, <laughs> internal uh, bleeding and everyone rushed their children <laughs> yeah. to the yeah. hospital I mean and we know we still have Frank and Barry so but she has that <laughs> she has a very Do pushy we? lover who is, is annoying but then I think I think the thing that really makes me think of like kind of even beyond a mother having the like strength to fight off a dog is the fact that she is constantly while dealing with this dog that's going to eat them having to reassure her kid Mm -hmm. and be like no no it's okay like that's the thing Mm -hmm. that makes you be like man moms (laughs) (laughs) they really got it I think it's really accurate I mean I'm I'm not uh, a mother Becky you are but like she gets really frustrated and she lashes out at him and I think that that is maybe the most accurate portrayal of how a situation like that would really go like she is like it's okay don't worry but there are also times where she is so frightened and so scared especially when he gets really sick and the seizures and you don't there's no foreboding with the seizures it's not like discussed earlier in the film that he suffers seizures it's really made clear that like he's suffering a seizure potentially because of the situation they're in inside the car yeah um and 
she does lash, lashes too, lash out is too strong of a phrase, but she gets very frustrated and she eventually is just like, I don't know. Like, this is like, I am as fucking scared as you are. <laughs> like, yeah. And it's yeah. such a, a, a humanistic moment. Accurate portrayals of how people handle stress and tragedy yes. is always one of my favorite things. One thing that we didn't mention that is interesting about this film too is uh, the fact that Every almost everybody walked off set. Uh, hmm. Two days into filming, the original director Peter Medak, who did The Changeling, and his DOP both walked off set, which left it up to producers and Stephen King to recast Why was the that? director. Alicia, this is a story that I'm going to recommend uh, Dee Wallace tell you herself. Uh, here she is in an interview with Danielle Harris for her fantastic YouTube series Common Terror. Talking about exactly that. And what happened? Well, what happened was I came out and he thought I should be in a see-through blouse with no bra. And this was all about sex, this whole movie. And I went, what? That's kind of what I do, huh? (laughs) And so I went to Dan and I said, Dan, this is not the movie I signed up for. And he went, Huh? <laughs> so yeah, and and Louis Teague uh, was partially Stephen King's choice because he made uh, this Jaws ripoff called Alligator, uh, which I know that you have seen and enjoyed. Becky, I love it so which much. Is a very weird procedural about <laughs> a giant alligator, like, uh, and it's uh, a very strange film, partially because again, it looks very much at the realistic situation you would have if there was a giant alligator. I think partially because it's written by Jaws ripoff expert John Sayles, <laughs> who made Piranha, who, who yeah, he wrote so many Jaws versions that he, he was probably more into the minutiae of how people deal with large animals. So I think that that's kind of an interesting aspect that Louis Teague... And, and yeah, what you're describing is perfect, because yeah, Louis Teague knows that it's not about the affair and the husband... Mm-hmm. Uh, it's about the dog and surviving the dog. <laughs> I had not seen this film previous. I've avoided this film my entire life. Um, I had avoided the book. I'm someone who's, very, I mean, I think a lot of people are, but I'm not in the minority. I'm very sensitive to any sort of animal sort of issue in a film. And mm. I was actually kind of surprised by the end of watching this. I didn't feel like I had been subjected to something that was abusive or like you know really triggered my like animal sensitivities it wasn't Um, a homeward bound or milo and otis situation no i can't watch that shit are you kidding me like (laughs) that's like the most triggering um i know from i haven't read the book myself i put it on my overdrive to try to get from the toronto public library and it's a very like difficult book to (laughs) obtain for some reason but uh i know Mm. it's a lot it's from the dog's perspective of almost like an inner monologue of the dog like you say in the end wanting to be a good dog and I just thought to myself, like, how do you translate that to film? And it's kind of mm. wondrous how that was done. Because you don't get, you can't have a dog talking in like a, a rough, rough voice that doesn't make any sense. But there is a moment <laughs> where you get to see as Cujo's developing rabies. He's been bitten by a bat. You see the development of it and it's it creates so much empathy for this creature in a way that I think a film like Jaws doesn't. Right. Mm. Like you have you have a certain sense that these are just animals or in this case, you know, fish and they're they're meant to kill. They're meant to eat. They're meant. But this is different with Cujo. It's like it's a it's a disease. It's not his fault. And there are moments where he does calm down when he's attacking Dee Wallace and her son in the car. And she looks and there's one way she looks into his eyes and he's all of a sudden for maybe like a, like three or four seconds, a good dog again. 
Like he just kind of relaxes and like he kind of licks his lips and looks at her like a very sweet dog. And I just thought that's the moment where you're able to translate the idea of a book being an inner monologue of a dog to a film like this. Well, and the way it's shot, too, I think really translates that as well. How often you see the the point of view and the close-ups of Cujo, how they kind of cut back and forth between the two, so you're kind of in their point of view. And the fact that yeah. his owner is a total dick also helps. So, yeah. you know, uh, yeah, he's oh, totally. abusive, for the dog. Yeah, he's, yeah. A, he's a wife yeah. abuser, and yeah. It's, uh, he and we eats get him. a lot of, yeah, <laughs> we get a lot of Cujo before he's bad, mm-hmm. and we we get as much cutting back and forth between Cujo and the mother as anything else, too. It's kind of like the marriage that's, you know, the the main narrative, I guess, of the film, or at least you think it is. Like, it's not a strong marriage. It's made very clear, mm-hmm. and, and she is having an affair, but he's also completely neglecting um, the emotional well-being of his family. And it's kind of like one of those things where it's like, no one's bad. It's just sometimes you're in these situations and bad things occur. And it's in some cases it's blameless, in some cases it's faultless. And it's just this is the, the stress of being a mother, of being a young mother, of a marriage that's kind of on the rocks, like all of these things, um, of being a bored housewife, like it's it's just there's no judgment, which is kind of interesting. It's just it's just presented as is. And again, this is an absolutely gorgeous film. I want to bring us back to the dogs just for a second because there's so many great stories about yes. the dogs in this. <laughs> mm-hmm. So at one point, um, I think one of the things that people would be not so okay with is that in one of the scenes when the dog is on top of her, they had to drug the dog, and then she had to like look like she was struggling with it. So <laughs> tiny little D Wallace had to like bench press an 150 pound Saint Bernard that's like. Yeah. dead weight on top of her. Um, But (laughs) no one seems to agree how many dogs there were. Right. (laughs) There were multiple dogs. They were all trained and they were all trained to do a different thing. Like there was one dog for leaping, one dog for digging, one dog for this. Mm -hmm. Because St. Bernard's are apparently notoriously hard to train. They tried to turn it into Mm -hmm. like a a, a Doberman at one point or a German Shepherd because they were like, we can train those. I think think one of them is a, I think it's, I think you're right. I think it's a Maybe it was a Doberman. They put like a, a St. Bernard costume on a Doberman for one of the shots. <laughs> and I just was like, please tell me there's behind the scenes photography of how this went down. <laughs> like, well, notoriously dressing up dogs as other things. Uh, Cam and I are very familiar with the film Deadly Eyes, uh, which we won't oh, get yeah. into. But that one, they dress dash hounds as giant rats. Oh, I know this film. <laughs> yeah, yeah, costumes. I know that. So and the alien yeah. dog, you can always look up. There's a dog in an alien costume, which is quite <laughs> it's funny. It's wonderful. From- when I was really um, upset about having to watch this film... Uh, Cam sent me, well, he, Cam told me that story that you just told Becky that like a lot of the dogs were actually quite happy to be doing this because the way they got the dog, the St. Bernard's to attack the cars, they would put their favorite toys inside the car, like through the window, and then they would lunge and leap. But <laughs> they had this problem where they were so excited because they were playing that their tails looked happy. So they had to find a way to wire their tails like down to make them look like they're, you know, rabid and angry and going to eat mm-hmm. Dee Wallace and her son. But uh, when I was upset about this, Cam told me, you know, that story that they were happy. And then he also sent me a photo that's behind the scenes that I had never seen before of like a man in a St. Bernard costume on set dancing with Dee Wallace. <laughs> like one, Some of the shots are like a man on all fours in, in a dog costume. That's the kind of campy fun that I want out of my behind the scenes footage. You know, um, the straw going up to Hannibal Lecter's mask, that kind yeah, of thing, yeah. you know. Yeah. Um, yeah. And then we've talked about like how dark and gritty this one is. And usually that's how Stephen King works best. But there's another adaptation, which is our second movie today, which relies more on the campy fun side of things, even though it's creepy and a little bit weird. And that is 
Christine. It's more on the supernatural side of the spectrum. Uh, It's got a unique stamp on it put on by none other than John Carpenter. In fact, it's billed as John Carpenter's Christine, not as Stephen King's Christine, which I thought was very interesting, Um, especially the idea that he was a bigger draw than Stephen King at the time. So how many people do you guys think would list Christine as their favorite Stephen King novel? No one. No one? Yeah. Yeah, I don't know. I actually don't really have any impression of it as a book is the interesting thing. Uh, I really think that maybe the movie outshines it. I I agree with that. Um, Yeah, I I also think with how when Christine was released in 1983, the reviews were pretty, they were relatively mediocre. But I am seeing a bit of a resurgence with people who I think judged it harshly when they first saw it, maybe 10 years ago or even more. And now, like, watching it today, um, I've always actually liked this film quite a bit, but watching, rewatching it for this podcast, I appreciate it even more because it seems, to me at least, kind of timely in how it deals with um, incel culture. Mm. How so? Can you, can you go into that? Yeah. So I can. So Christine, for those who don't know, is is the kind of the infamous book, the infamous film that is uh, a possessed car that's capable of killing and named Christine. Christine, I always thought when I was little that Christine was like the girl driving the car, but in fact, no, it's, it's the name of the car. Cars have names. Uh, the film takes place in 1978, and it's uh, set around teenagers. You know, it's hard to say there's a lead character in this. I think the lead character in this film is Christine the car because the protagonist, the human protagonists change almost throughout the film. Uh, it starts out with Arnie, who's played by Keith Gordon, who is a very prototypical nerd, like, you know, tape on his glasses, that kind of thing, uh, who doesn't have a lot of friends, but he does have one best friend who's a pretty smoking hot football player named Dennis. And Arnie's really bullied, and I don't even understand how it happens, but he he's driving and he sees this junked up car. It's a 1958 Plymouth Fury, and uh, he buys it, restores it, and the car kind of possesses him and uh, makes him really mean and... All of a sudden, he's kind of cool. He starts. It's 1978. But he starts dressing like a 1950s greaser, which I think is really <laughs> odd. Like I actually thought this film took place in the 50s, and it doesn't. He gets a girlfriend at one point. Like the car gets jealous and locks the doors with Lee in it and makes her choke. Like it's really scary. I found this film really scary. And when I so when I'm talking about insult culture, you watch Arnie go from like I'm a guy who can't get a girl, I'm a nerd, to like getting really aggressive with women and really aggressive with particularly with his girlfriend to almost uh, almost becoming homicidal and he's bullied by other men as yes. well like there's there yes. is a the, the whole concept maybe going to high school in the united states or we went to an inner city high school even though it was an arts high school but there wasn't this kind of like danger this i mean this guy is getting threatened by a kid with a knife and it's not immediate expulsion it's just like yeah yeah, yeah just Who's, just go to this uh, the office you scamp you know and this it's kid, very weird. the kid with the knife is definitely played by a 39 year old man yeah yes. which is oh i um, think it's the that implication that he's been held back a lot. Mm. Yeah, yeah, that's too. true. That's true. But um, and you know, all of his bullies, Christine, sometimes with Arnie at the wheel, and sometimes not, chases them down and systematically kills them off one by one. And so Dennis, his best friend, and his and his girlfriend Lee are really concerned for Arnie, and they they try to save him by destroying Christine. And that's where like probably some of the most incredible special effects and just a really great duel it's literally like a duel between a car with no driver and uh this little teenage girl at behind the wheel of a bulldozer i mean bulldozers have wheels i don't even know what that is but uh or maybe it's a forklift i can't remember what it is but it's a bulldozer it's a bulldozer bulldozer. like it's just um there's nothing quite like this film like it's not like duel the steven spielberg film it's it's not like other car films it's uh 
I'm I'm always very like enraptured in the film because of how it sort of problematizes nostalgia. It almost like weaponizes nostalgia. What's more American than car culture, right? Classic car culture. And what's more like link, linking that to masculinity and, and f- the fragility of masculinity and how toxic and dangerous it is. And like, that's really, for me, very um, forward thinking in 1983. Uh, notoriously, John Carpenter was actually working on another Stephen King adaptation before this one. I needed a job. I, I was, I lost a movie after the thing at Universal. I was going to do Firestarter. And they wanted to cut it down to like a $5 million film and and things. He lost that one because the thing tanked so hard. There's also a very interesting kind of aspect to this where this is like I was saying, Stephen King was going around with the galleys and somebody he approached approached specifically was Richard Cobritz, who had produced the TV adaptation of Salem's Lot. And he essentially said, listen, I got Cujo and I got Christy. <laughs> and <laughs> what Richard do you want? Coverage was like, uh, I don't like Cujo. <laughs> so he he was the one shopping around Christine. So, yeah. And, and I think John Carpenter felt the same way. He didn't quite get Cujo. Uh, but Christine really spoke to him. And it's, uh, yeah. So, I mean, Becky, we, we've talked about this a bit, but like. I, I'm a huge John Carpenter fan. There's very few John Carpenter films that I don't appreciate. Perhaps Village of the Damned is the one. But uh, uh. he talks about phoning this in. Like he was like, it was just because the thing was so unsuccessful, which to me, wrapping my head around how the thing was such a dismal, uh, you know, d- disaster at the box office, I can't even like conceptualize because that's such a special film. He did it for the, the the money and didn't really care. And this was just like a paycheck. And that's so strange because I don't I don't read that off this film. Like he, he composed the score. Um, I have traveled to Detroit to watch him play the score live, which is super <laughs> weird. But um, I think the performances, especially from Keith Gordon, who would later become a director, are phenomenal. And I just don't see, like, I see that he phoned in Village of the Damned. I see that very mm. clearly. I don't see him phoning this in at all. And he's always so vocal about, like, yeah, 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 I just did this for the paycheck. Ka-ching, ka-ching. <laughs> I think phoning it in means different things at different stages in a person's career, right? Mm. Like, you see yeah. how much, and you listen to interviews about how much attention and care went into something like Halloween or The Thing. I mean, The Thing, there is love all over that movie, even mm-hmm. though it's one of the most terrifying films of all time. It is loved. Christine is just, like, that step back from loved, but there's nothing wrong with it. But he was in such a go mode from The Thing, which is such a special effects heavy film. And mm-hmm. it's the same special effects artist for Christine. Roy Roy Arbogast. Yeah, there was already that working relationship between the two. And you know, he's not going to be phoning it in, right? Those special effects are going to look amazing, which they do. Oh so you get that, that marriage in there where it's not... It, Maybe it felt phoned at the time or looking back, it felt phoned in, but it wasn't actually. I think, you know, if we're talking about the special effects, there's, you know, there's there's actually several really impressive special effects sequences. But there's a main one, which is Christine gets completely destroyed. The car gets completely destroyed. Um, It's like a crumpled up mess by the bullies who are, you know, targeting Arnie. And the car rebuilds itself. And it's so the the special effects supervisor was Roy Arbogast, sorry, Roy Arbogast, who um, sounds like a detective name from like a a dime store novel. (laughs) Roy, Roy Arbogast. Yeah, he had, um, well, Arbogast, anyway, it doesn't matter. Um, He had worked on almost uh, all of uh, John Carpenter's films and he'd also worked on Jaws as an uncredited mechanic. So he was Mm. one of the guys that was like in charge of fixing both the original shark in Jaws and in Jaws 2. So he's like obviously very well versed. And to build this sequence of this car regenerating itself, it's all pulleys from inside the car. Wild. And they like pull it 
in so and then reverse the film so it looks like Christine is on her own accord, like pumping out all of the dents and rebuilding her bumper when really like on the camera, they're they're kind of destroying the car. There was the budget, the car budget on this film was insane. Yeah. I think they destroyed like, and they also, the night 58 Plymouth Furies were not easy to find. So there's a couple different um, kind of models of that car, but they destroyed like seven or eight or nine of them. Like there was a huge like casting call for these cars. Uh, and only, I think only two survived the actual production. One is with a collector and I don't know what happened to the other one, but it's like really one of the most famous cars in in, in film history, I would say. A lot of people refer to that scene as Christine doing a strip tease. And I yes, think that fits read into this. car culture in a way that I do not understand. <laughs> I I'm like, find it's that a, very yeah. odd. Yeah. I'm like, it's a very cool effect, but... Uh. Yeah, there's there's a lot of like, there's a psychosexual dynamic to this film that I think works really, really well without it being, um, without it being like kind of discriminatory towards women. Mm. And mm. Keith Gordon, I think, has talked about how anytime he interacted with the car, like if he was touching the leather upholstery, he would think of it as though he was touching like the body part of like a woman. Like it's very and watching knowing that and watching the film, I see that like there's so much like weird physical chemistry that Christine has. Get I get why people say striptease. I don't see that necessarily. But uh just equating cars and sex and death and all, all of this makes perfect sense for, like, Stephen King, John Carpenter, and this film. Yeah. Cam, you mentioned earlier that a lot of these films had parts of them changed, and for the better and for the worse. Sometimes it works better, mm-hmm. sometimes it doesn't. And this one, notoriously, was quite significantly changed in that who the car is possessing and what the active force behind it is. Um, do you guys think that works for the better? And what works with changing Stephen King endings and stories? Hmm. Well, I mean... For me, what changes is essentially it's just possessed by a ghost of one man. In the and, book. Uh, in the book. And in the movie, they decide that it's just evil. Well, using just, bad to the bone. Yeah. Made yeah. evil. Yeah, the I was going to say. The this film is, uh, opens on the factory line with, like, the car being built, which is really cool. And then it kills one of the workers who, like, puts some, accidentally gets some ash on its seat. So it's like it's mm-hmm. like evil from the second it's conceived. In the, in the film, not in the book. cuts a man and, like takes his blood but yeah like becky was saying it's this is the first film arguably there's two this year but this movie made a bigger deal of it to use bad to the bone by george thorogood which now is in every movie trailer of all time and george thorogood even uh, filmed a cameo which unfortunately was left on the cutting room apparently it's so bad that they just couldn't do it he's Uh, an excellent musician not an actor not an actor (laughs) um but yeah so i think that's very interesting and it also kind of makes a more interesting character. So eventually, it's supposed to be this man whose brother you meet, because the man is dead, uh, played by Robert Blossoms. And I think it gives this big option for a a part of the movie, which I think is very good, which is all these character actors, which I think is a thing Stephen King really liked, and John Carpenter does, which is these more realistic, weird-looking people. So you have Robert Blossoms, you have Harry Dean Stanton and Robert Prosky all playing these weird side characters, Mm -hmm. (laughs) just doing whatever they want. Um, and also, I know that like when we say he phoned it in, like John Carpenter fought really hard. The studio wanted Kevin Bacon and Brooke Shields to be in this movie, and uh, he fought really hard to have lesser known uh, actors. Keith Gordon's probably the best known from like Jaws Two and Dressed to Kill. When I was thinking about Christine, I was trying to think about you know Cars and Hollywood, and I realized this is sort of Stephen King and John Carpenter's answer to 1968's The Love Bug, the original <laughs> like Herbie film. So I think. 
you know, there's a context there that like this really was kind of this was a really like evil version of those films, which I think is kind of fascinating. But isn't that I think it's a family guy joke, isn't it? Where it's like, uh, what's your new <laughs> it villain? Is. It's an evil lamp. Ooh. Yeah. Like there's a yeah, yeah there's that bit of that. him just yeah. trying to like villainize different inanimate objects, which isn't really his thing. Like it's no. not really inanimate objects. And it's interesting because if we flash forward three years and spoiler alert, season two of this podcast will focus on 1986 and and we have Maximum Overdrive, which is mm. another Stephen King directed. He directed Maximum Overdrive, his first directorial feature. Uh, and it's again about kind of possessed, not cars, trucks, semi trucks. Mm. Uh, and it's it's real dumb. It's not it's not a, it's not a Christine. It's it's quite quite stupid. But uh, obviously, this is a theme with Stephen King is uh, kind of the adrenaline behind car culture and and possessing them. The last thing I want to bring up is um, the fact that this film is basically goreless. So yeah. to come from something like The Thing, which it got hit for because it was so gory and so visceral and so violent, um, to then be completely 180 and make this as like straight and just about all the kills happen off screen, yeah. even though they're still very disturbing, is a really interesting take on it. It is goreless, but it's not without violence and, and it's not without bodily violence. So like when I think about the scene with Lee choking inside Christine at the drive-in and Christine locks the, the door so that no one can help her. Um, to me, like, it's such an empathetic moment because, like, we've, we're all terrified of choking. We've all probably experienced a slight choking incident at some point where you're gasping for air. So there's that. There's also, like, Christine, whenever she crushes someone, like, like runs into them, like, it's bloodless, but it's, like, you still hear the crunch of their bones. Like, the sound effects are really well done. Like, it's actually quite impressive that this is less... Because the plot is kind of like a slasher film, right? Like, mm-hmm. part, like tracking down someone one by one, killing them off. There's a final girl. Like this is a slasher film and yet it's bloodless, but not without substantial like empathetic portrayals of uh, terrifying bodily injury. I have a whole thing for stunt people and the, the stunts yes. that they do. And uh, Terry Leonard, who was the stunt driver in this, he also famously doubles Harrison Ford as Indiana Jones, um, was driving the car blind through blacked out windows. Oh um, and then the car was on fire and he was in a flame resistant suit and had to like drive through. That's the gas station scene. And I'm yeah. just like, man, we need to give more props to stunt people because that's we, just We need wild. to give more props to stunt people and we needed retroactively not to put them in so much danger in the 1980s. Yes. <laughs> oh, yes. Oh, man. Uh, I think that uh, leads us into our next segment, guys, because, uh, you know, we got cars. We're headed to Tijuana. And uh, when we come back, there was a movie released as Porky's 3 in Brazil to cash in on that franchise's success. And weirdly, it ends up being the most progressive film of the 1980s sex comedy genre. At least, that's my opinion. That's coming up after the break. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. 
LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The teen sex comedy is a genre that has come and gone and then come again in popularity, but always seems to follow the same pattern. A group of young heterosexual men engage in hijinks to either see women naked or get those women to have sex with them by any means necessary. The sex comedy genre is nothing new. It's been around since Ovid and Chaucer, but until 1981 and the release of Porky's, Hollywood didn't really focus on the teenage years of human sexuality. Even Animal House is about college students. Cam, do you want to walk us through how Porky's changed the game? Sure. Uh, as we talked about, actually, in previous episodes, uh, 1978 was kind of a big coming out for talking mm. about sex in movies because Grease and Animal House had, had a lot of fun sex talk. And it's not unusual kind of in the late 60s and 70s to have a bit of the teen sex comedy. But yeah, Porky's, uh, Bob Clark wrote this script partially based on his own experiences. God knows I don't want to know how much. Uh, but uh, <laughs> he couldn't get it made at any studio. And then he went up to Canada uh, for the old tax shelter. Uh, and they let him make it. And of, of course, Canada at the time, too, with the tax shelter, was making all this uh, stuff that was known as maple porn, which was essentially just like uh, high-grade softcore, uh, which sold very well in Canada, at least. Uh, so it pushed the boundaries a lot. Uh, Porky's is uh, the tale of uh, men going to a brothel and then getting in a fight with a brothel owner. But there's a lot of nudity, a lot of boobs. It's notorious for one particular shower scene in which they peeping Tom in on sure. a group of women in this shower, and, uh, and which is often emulated in other films. The lady grabs the guy's crank. We all know. <laughs> <laughs> it's a thing. Uh, I yeah. have not seen um, this film. I'm just listening. <laughs> he Well, he, he decides to stick his penis through the peephole, and that's his first mistake. Yeah. Huh. Um, <laughs> Uh, is that his first mistake or doing this at all? Oh, yes. is no, his I first mean, mistake. Uh, listen, <laughs> yes, uh, this is going to be a real boys will be boys time. Uh, but oh, but what what makes Porky's different beyond showing boobs? Because uh, movies would show boobs. It's not crazy. But uh, it was made for five million dollars and made one hundred and thirty six oh million dollars. It was essentially the uh, paranormal activity of its day. Um, it was the highest grossing Canadian film until Resident Evil yeah, usurped it in yes. the early. 2000s. And especially adjusted for inflation, it, it held on for a long, long time. Um, so that immediately made people realize that a raunchier sex comedy could uh, make them a lot of money. So from 1981 to 1982, you see a lot of stuff, the kind of big prestige one is the last american virgin in 1982 mm -hmm. which is actually an adaptation of an israeli movie called lemon popsicle which makes it a little more uh, erudite because you're kind of like this doesn't make sense because it's a like an almost a shot for shot adaptation and america <laughs> is not israel so you're like uh uh but there's also terrible stuff like zapped which is just about a man with telekinetic powers taking girls tops <laughs> off of. oh, um, but to think uh this really drove an industry especially in australia and canada where these movies could be made for cheap and the censorship laws were a little looser. So even though the tax shelter era ended officially kind of in 1982, you had a real run for the border to make these movies. And just to, to give an idea of 1983... 
there's the movies we're going to talk about. There was also Joysticks, Spring Break, Private School, My Tutor, Dr. Detroit kind of counts. Uh, Porky's 2 was out in 1983. Uh, the first Turn On, which is a really weird one, stuck on you. So there was like, there was so many of these. We had and- so many to choose just for this episode, like just yes, for 1983. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> we had to be selective <laughs> yeah, about which Yes, and, and honestly, I do think that we, when when we're describing these movies, any knocks we have against them, they still tend to be better than the ones we're not describing. I think yes. My Tutor has its fans. I, I mean, Dr. Detroit is a whole other thing. And uh, private, private school's about women, right? It's like yeah. porkies, but with horny girls. Yeah, it's. I mean, it still ends up being very male gazy, but it's a, yeah, yeah Phoebe Cates, and it, it stars a bunch of women mostly and, but this is also kind of an interesting genre because porkies is really what hit uh you often get a lot of um a lot of them are period pieces uh a lot of them are kind of weirdly playing on uh, baby boomer nostalgia uh, for the 1950s mm-hmm. i think this is why we talked about that sometimes movies set in the 80s feel like they're set in the 50s mm-hmm. just because it all kind of mushes together in these genres but the interesting thing to me is they play to this boomer nostalgia but it would have to be the kind of younger end of boomers because I think they were mostly consumed by kind of Gen X because uh, my thing is always like, you know, if I was a a baby boomer in 1983 and I wanted to see some boobs, I'd probably have sex with my wife or or go to a strip club (laughs) or go to uh, one of these cat houses in the movie. A lot of them were were a lot older. So it's kind of interesting that there's this genre of mostly 50s set films to appeal to the kids kind of sneaking into them. It's, uh, yeah, unusual. I think that's a a great point, Cam, that these were meant for kids and sneaking into them, but also the beginnings of VHS and the fact that you would walk down the aisle and you would see, you know, the bikini top being pulled out by like an unseen male hand or like the nerd surrounded by all these beautiful women. And you were like, if I rent that... I am going to see boobs, oh, and I don't yeah. have to do National Geographic, yes. and it's going to be great. And definitely stuff like joysticks, I don't think, had a huge box office. <laughs> uh, I think that it was no. primarily a VHS uh, rental. Yeah, I think they, they also figured out, like, it doesn't matter how raunchy it is. You can have, mm-hmm. like, an R rating, and you'll still make box office if you choose to release it, but you're really going to hit it home on home media because no one's really caring if you rent one of these. And you, like you say, uh, people actually, this is an interesting time because they were gunning for our rating. Something we didn't mention with Christine is they actually added a bunch of swears to make it R because it was not hard enough to be R. And this is the same. I think I think quite often, actually, you find a movie that looks like it's going to show you boobs, and it barely does. Uh, but the first movie we're going to talk about, I think, takes the oh, cake man. for the most boobs on film by I a mile. I think it is the highest breast per minute <laughs> ratio, and I'm not I'm not going to count. I'm not going to sit there and yeah. like do a spreadsheet and a tally. No. But uh, man, it's got to be up there. Uh, the first film we're talking about is Screwballs, which is less of like a feature narrative film. Yeah. Um, and more a series of vignettes of hijinks, incredibly predatory hijinks sure. in some respects, of these young men. The, the kind of overarching thing is they're trying to get at this woman named Purity, mm-hmm. um, who they who's like, you know, the class pris. But they're really just trying to see women naked or, and slash or sleep with women the entire time. Yes. This one, interestingly, has a pretty big tie in with a director we're going to be talking to in season two of uh, the TV series of A Year in Film. Little spoiler alert, little treat there to go watch that. (laughs) Alicia, what's up with that? Jim Wynorski, who I think is a name 
perhaps a small fraction of our listeners will recognize. If you do know his name, you probably love him. He's very lovable. Uh, He started working with Roger Corman, like in the 70s and the 80s. And on this particular film, Screwballs, this is his first experience. Uh, we, We interviewed him pretty recently before the lockdown in Los Angeles. And this is the first time he had come to Canada. So he was actually really excited that we were from Toronto because he had the experience of working on Screwballs. And specifically, you know, his biggest role in Screwballs was that he uh, designed the posters. So when you and Cam were talking about like walking down a VHS <laughs> aisle and seeing all of those lewd illustrated covers, that was the handiwork and talent <laughs> of Jim Wynorski in the case of Screwballs. Lots of legs, you know, and actually the the model of, if you look at the cover of Screwballs, like if you Google it, the model where it's like the nude woman is uh, one of yeah. the, like, the co-writers of the film that I think he was dating. Like Jim told us that he would take projects based on what woman <laughs> yeah. he could date who were yes. also working on the film. Um, so I think this was, I, I'm not sure, this seems like one of his more lauded relationships. But uh, he he would do some script work, I yeah. believe, on Screwballs, but then would go on to make Chopping Mall as a director, a screenwriter and director in 1986. So like this was kind of the first, This was he'd worked on a lot of Roger Corman's designing the posters and things, but this was kind of his first, one of his first like big, like I'm on set actually mm-hmm. doing other roles. That actress slash writer's name is Linda Shane, who plays a character called Bootsy Goodhead. And this follows mm-hmm. in like the grand tradition of James Bond movies where like there's all these punny names oh, and yeah. all sorts of stuff. This movie uh, is Purity, yeah, Purity Bush. primarily a pun. Yeah, uh, Muffy. A pun. Uh, <laughs> Principal stuck off. Uh, Rhonda Rocket. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> I mean, they go to TNA is their school. Uh, it, it's It's very much... The thing that I think makes Screwballs kind of acceptable, well, number one, I think it's quite acceptable, partially because it's, it's yeah, written by Linda Shane. Bootsy Goodhead is a very sexually liberated woman who is not shamed for that. She is about as horny as the guys are, and she's involved in all these hijinks, and she also hates She's also like Bush. 37 years yeah, old, once I mean, again, coming back to casting are. these high school uh, movies yeah. with these actors. Though uh, Peter Callahan, uh, who many Canadians will know from the is newsroom, he's, he seems maybe legitimately yeah. near his teen years. He might have been 19 or 20. Yeah, the yeah. newsroom? What about Red Green, oh, my friend. I mean, He's sure. the ranger in Red Green, sure, Canadian Mom. content. Um, <laughs> I was trying to give him a little class after Screwballs. It, I mean, Screwballs is very Red Green, but with tits, basically. Uh, <laughs> oh but, but this movie, I think what makes it kind of charming, like you say, is it's like, it's, it's sketches, basically. And it has this very Mad Magazine sensibility. It really kind of hits, or like National Lampoon, I guess, at the time. Because it's, it's these ridiculous things things where it's like how are we going to get girls tops off it's like well i'm going to pretend to be a doctor who's examining them i'm going to hypnotize them I'm going to bury my friend in the sand <laughs> yeah. with, ju- with just a periscope so that he can look favorite up over stuff. top. Yeah. I think they were talking about how when they w- went to realize the screenplay, they wanted to make the film look like the Archie comics mm-hmm. come to mm-hmm. life. Which I mean, obviously, these kinds of incidents did not happen in Archie. But um, I do see that. And I do think that that is... I do, I do not approve of this film or like it. <laughs> but I do think that was a successful element of it. Yeah, absolutely. And they, they like you're right, they did it down to the costumes, down to the mm-hmm. production design. It's all very colorful. It's all very weird and over the top, which I think also makes... Because some of these movies can be grim, quite frankly. Mm-hmm. I think Zapped is quite grim <laughs> because yeah. it's just kind of assaultive. Whereas this one yeah. at least is so stupid and over the top, none of it seems real. You know? Yeah, it's not disguised in any way. Like no. John Hughes films to me are disguised 
like rape fantasies. Yeah. Yeah. Whereas this, like, I don't think I pull out screwballs and look at that Jim Wynorski cover and think this is going to be anything but absolute <laughs> raunch and wrong. Yeah. And I'm okay with that. Like, you, you, I am okay when you, you get what you bargain for. I think my big thing is, like, in Porky's, there is a female character who jokes with them and gives as good as she gets. Like, there's a yeah. great back and mm-hmm. forth. And in this one, there's a great scene in a bowling alley, which, of course, <laughs> someone's penis gets stuck in a bowling ball because, of yeah. course, it does. Yeah. Um, which, just, I'm sorry. I can't believe I actually said that sentence in a podcast. It's going out. Um, I did laugh out loud with the boner in the bowling ball. It's <laughs> funny. But the thing is, is that everybody is in on the joke. Yeah. The women are there. They think it's funny. The men are there. They think it's funny. And everybody's together. And it's when you have something predatory like American Pie and that mm-hmm. horrific scene with the exchange student. Like, horrific. Watching that mm. now is like, mm-hmm. how is that even remotely acceptable being in, in 2000, a yeah. for children? But this one, and the intention is is for lack of a better word pure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, like it's just, yeah. it's there's also fun. a lot of people give this one weird credit for the fact that the group of guys is. Uh, while I say diverse, know that they're all white, but uh, yeah. diverse in that it is weirdly a group of friends who are a jock, a nerd, a fat guy, the class clown. Like they are all weirdly. There's no stratification. Whereas most of these other movies, there's kind of like a weird class system. But this one mm-hmm. is like they all agree they want to see boobs mm-hmm. and, and well, they help each other out. Something like Animal House, you know, you're supposed to like get off on these very upper class white young men who can afford to go to college going into like a hick bar and making fun of everyone when they really shouldn't. Like there's no reason they should be there, right? That happens in Porky's too. Yeah. Oh, okay. I haven't seen. Here's the problem. I have not seen Animal House or Porky's. <laughs> <laughs> no, but I have Porky's, seen Porky's yeah. three in Brazil, which yeah, I'm talking sure. about. Uh, in Porky's, the the premise is that they go to a hick bar, which has mm. like full on Confederate flags everywhere, and okay, it is a thinking, brothel. Yeah. And then they yeah. get embarrassed, humiliated, and then they declare yeah. war on this bar. This bar. Yeah. yeah. Whereas Screwballs, and I, if I have to pick a few things that I like about this film, I'm <laughs> going to say if you enjoy Canadian locations, like seeing vintage sort of locations at Toronto. This is um, this features Fillmore's, the very famed strip club here in Toronto. And it's a, it's a really great scene. And then it also has, um, I'm a big fan of drive-ins. And I think right now we're all thinking a lot about drive-ins because of lockdown. But uh, the it was called the TP Indoor Outdoor Drive-In in Pickering. And mm. it was one of the only, like, this was a thing I didn't know about. Like, if the weather got bad, you could drive into this giant, mm. like, warehouse and continue <laughs> the movie. But it was open until 1997. And I kind of do love those scenes. You don't see much of Toronto, really, in, in Screwballs. But I do love... Seeing Fillmore's, which is such a legendary venue that is still struggling today to like remain open. I love seeing it here in 1983. Mm-hmm. It'll be condos next week, Alicia. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was doing the research last night. I was like, oh, damn, it is going to be condos in a couple weeks. <laughs> like, yeah. Not a couple weeks, but. But it'll feel like it. Basically, I didn't love this film particularly either. <laughs> it's not but really a I, run out and see one. <laughs> no, no. But I do think it is interesting in terms of like we talk about Canadian film history and this is the stuff that kept our film industry going. Yep. And that's important mm-hmm. so that we could go on to make films that are more representative of our country yep. and what our artistic sure. capabilities are. Many people bought very nice houses in Rosedale because of screwballs. One, two, three, four, <laughs> five, six, seven and eight. Okay. <laughs> that having been said, Alicia, I have to. 
have to ask you this because people who have seen the A Year in Film TV series will mm. know you have a thing for the Munchies series of films. Mm-hmm. Now, is this more deserving of a franchise than Munchies is? That question is so complex that I'm completely <laughs> going blank. Um, I will say if it helps. Uh, Thank you, Kim. Well, no, I mean, uh, Jim Wynarski uh, also responsible for munchie munchies or just munchies no so it's just it's i mean god this is oh not there's munchies. A munchies yeah which are yeah. little gremlin creatures that he's not involved with and then he took the he name it's munchie. also roger carmen yeah. and made a puppet film for kids where like <laughs> basically this puppet could be in a porky's yeah you can you can hear then he about made it another. in season one of a year in film but uh if it matters, if it please the court, uh, Jim Wynarski <laughs> was actually quite mad at the continuation of the Screwballs series yeah. oh, okay. because it was mostly yeah. taken away from them. Um, Rafael Zelinsky, the director, went on to do the second one. Um, but also, it's interesting, there's also this movement of balls movies, weirdly based on meatballs, meatballs. but there's Fireballs, Screwballs, Screwball Academy. Uh, the, you know, they just kind of continue. But uh, Wynarski... It's in the balls section of your yes, local blockbuster? Yes. I mean, there was, <laughs> apparently, at one point. Um, and most of them are Canadian, interestingly. He, he really said that he felt the decline in quality was like, terrible and this is for a guy who made screwballs <laughs> and munchie strikes back yeah so yes. i so i think he yeah so i think he would say the, the rest of them are not screwballs <laughs> well let's go into something that has a little bit more prestige and cachet if you will because it featured uh not one not two, but three soon-to-be very recognizable stars in it. Um, I mean, we're talking like mega stars. Uh, one of them being Shelley Long screaming, I'm getting a Tijuana divorce, which is really freaking funny. Alicia, you liked this one as much as I did, which we were both, I think, surprised by. What movie are we talking about? We're talking about Losing It, and that is Losing without a G and an apostrophe. In case yeah, don't try to look to... it up with a G <laughs> on IMDb. You get I, something different. Every time I go to look at the Wikipedia page, I like can't find it because like, it screws up with that apostrophe. If for young filmmakers or burgeoning, you know, filmmakers, please don't put apostrophes in your the titles of your your films. It's just like it's fine if it's possessive. Don't put it on the end, like breaking it, like those kinds of films. I'm just it drives me insane. But uh, for discoverability, you're going to be screwed. But um, yeah, losing it is 1983. Most notable for Tom Cruise, and in the TV show A Year in Film, we talk about 1983 as just this insane year for Tom Cruise, where he stars in four films. And the first film that to come out in that year, 1983, with Tom Cruise was The Outsiders. But he's not really in it that much. This is truly, like, losing it truly is kind of the breakout Tom Cruise role. You would, of course, have all the right moves that would follow. And um, oh, what's the one with the sunglasses? Why? Risky business. Risky business. Sorry. Sunglasses, socks, underwear. Come on, yeah. help me. Um, <laughs> the one with the sunglasses. Top Gun? Bob Seger. Bob Seger. <laughs> Days of all Thunder? All Tom Cruise Sorry. movies? Sorry. He also wears sunglasses and losing it. Yeah. But, uh, it takes place in the same year as Screwballs, which is 1965, which I think is kind of interesting. And it's uh, oh, I think I'll stop you there. Than... I think Screwballs is 1959. Yeah, maybe. Yeah, I don't know why I thought that. Anyway, in the same era, let's yeah. just say, <laughs> relatively. Um, and it's three, you know, high schoolers played by Tom Cruise, Jack Earl Haley from Watchmen, who looks like he's 55 years old in this film, uh, and another young actor who I'm blanking on. But uh, they end up deciding they're going to go to Tijuana to, like, lose their virginities. And they also, for some inexplicable reason that I can't remember, bring 
one of their very much younger brothers. Yeah. So he's got, got the money. So if someone drops money, out, yes. and then, yeah, he's, and and also, the kid's got the money because the kid's an entrepreneur. Interestingly, yeah, like the man you're forgetting is John Stockwell from Christine. Damn it. <laughs> <laughs> you mean the one that I just said was super hot? Yeah, yeah. yeah. Your super hottie is back to go to Tijuana. Uh, I didn't piece that together. Um, I did like this film. I do want to give the caveat, though, and I think, Becky, you and I talked about this, where, like, I watched these on the same day, so I started with Screwballs, and that's going to make any follow-up film seem like, you know, (laughs) Barry Lyndon, basically. Um, Mm. But I do think this is a really sweet film that has a premise that you would assume would be very rapey and very upsetting, and it it isn't. it's it's it isn't. I mean, it's it's there in the genre a little bit. But uh, they go to Tijuana. They pick up along the way. Shelley Long, who is trying to get a divorce from her husband. They run a general store and she like hitches a ride with these three boys and their younger brother. Uh, and they go to Tijuana so she can get a divorce and they can lose their virginity. And I'm sure you can uh, assume what's going to happen. Tom Cruise is a very attractive young man. He's very charming mm-hmm. in this film. He does manage to lose his virginity, not to a prostitute, which is the original plan, but to Shelley Long. And it's done in a really sweet way. I don't know. I was very surprised. The film was not filmed in Tijuana. It was filmed in, I might be pronouncing this wrong, which is terrible because I grew up in California, but Calexco. It's like on the border. It's like it's like Cali and Mexico in one word, which was kind of a stand-in in California for, for Mexico. It looked like Tijuana. But... Uh, you know, there's some there's some cultural issues in this film for sure, but overall, in the genre, this was kind of the like one that maybe people won't get the most mad at. Oh yeah, I think for me the the thing that stood out the most is that these boys get punished. And yes, they get away with it, but they get humiliated and bad things happen to them because their actions and intentions are bad. They're three-dimensional characters and it's an actual script, which Mm -hmm. I think Screwballs doesn't have. Weird. (laughs) Weird, eh? Um, But the other thing that's interesting to me, too, is that this is there is a large Hispanic cast Mm because they're in Tijuana. Um, All those actors get a lot to Mm -hmm. do, which I like, and they also get to mess with these boys. And so you're actually on both sides at the same time as opposed to just making the Hispanic characters Because you know that uh, they are taking advantage of Tijuana. There's actually a a very—I wrote down the whole speech. There's a speech that a teenager gives, too, that says that, like, Tijuana is bad because of Americans like the, yeah. he says that the city is not Mexican it's their town and without it's an people like park. them this would not exist and also you get like classic uh Henry Darrow plays the the sheriff that's kind of harassing them and he's actually the first uh, Hispanic actor to ever play Zorro so this is kind mm-hmm. of like a you know a Jason Robards or something showing up for uh like Latinx actor history so mm-hmm. yeah it's interesting because I do think that's uh, the first thing I'm like is like oh boy and and I mean Tijuana the Tijuana they make actually looks so crazy that I'm like I would probably go there <laughs> like it seems yeah. like a crazy <laughs> Las that's Vegas amazing. yeah the yeah. Sets are uh, beautiful, um, but yeah, it, it's interesting because there is a point to it that these guys are wrong, and I mean the whole thing is mm-hmm. essentially them all learning a lesson about their wrong intentions and their views towards sex and their views towards women mm-hmm. and economy and like the economy of sex workers. Like all of that is actually quite nuanced, which I found very surprising. I do want to point out because Becky, you mentioned that this only in Brazil this was 
uh, titled Porky's 3. It's Porky's with an I, yeah. which I just P- think Porky. is like the funniest thing. <laughs> like, I'm trying to do more research on it, and I, I kind of got nowhere, but I was just like, I want to find like an original Brazilian poster or something for this film, because I think it's really mm. interesting, because it's the least like the Porky's films. Yes. And it's just funny to me that a certain Latin, Latin American country would advertise it as Porky's 3. Oh, yeah. And I think that there's a lot of funny stuff where like these guys think they're in Porky's, and everything blows up in their face. Yeah, and... they're in like Touch of Evil because there's there's a lot <laughs> yeah. of danger in Tijuana. <laughs> they are like, basically there's... in Touch of Evil. Yeah, like it, it's it's you know it's it's a bit of a joke, but it's like the idea of bribing the police and all that. Like that's a very racist depiction of Mexico. But the thing is, is like that does happen in the film. But also like they're in a lot of danger because they're in another country and they're mm. not citizens of that country, and that automatically can put you at risk when you're going into a country to try to do illegal activities. Yeah. It's interesting when you research this film because, like, even the Wikipedia article, we do do more research than Wikipedia, but that's what you can <laughs> We certainly do, yeah. It's, like, three or four sentences, yeah. like, in terms of the plot. Like, there's not, considering this was a huge, you know, point in Tom Cruise's filmography, I guess it gets eclipsed, of course, by, like, the films that follow it. But uh, I am just so surprised this film isn't better known. Oh, totally. And, I mean, it's by Curtis Hansen, who's, like, a known yeah. director, Academy uh, Academy Award nominated, if not winner, for something mm-hmm. like L.A. Confidential. Like he's a powerhouse director. Oh, hand that rocks the cradle yeah. and uh, Silent Partner, which yes, yeah. he talked about in a year and film. wrote it. I had no idea. Yeah, no. He produced yeah. and wrote yeah. the Silent Partner. That's and crazy this is coming me. off of White Dog, which was quite a, a mm-hmm. big one. He did win the Oscar for screenplay. Uh, mm-hmm. Yeah, and uh, he was tr- kind of trying. <laughs> it's worth saying that his film right before this was called Little Dragons or Karate Kids USA. <laughs> so he he had been trying to dip <laughs> his uh, toes into uh, kid movies and teen movies. But yeah, I think that there's so much nuance because I mean, even if you think of just uh, the John Stockwell character, his thing is actually he's not that interested in the sex. Uh, he's mostly coming like as a bruiser. Like just a like a pent up guy because his whole thing is mm-hmm. mostly about being like like a toxic masculinity get into fights guy and his mm-hmm. whole story is mostly about him just getting into too many fights and then essentially getting beaten up so hard that uh, a guy in prison respects him <laughs> enough to beat up his yeah. enemies which is like yeah. but it's like yeah he has a real dark story that mostly just uh, um. Yeah, it goes there. And and like you say, all like all the sex workers are very, fairly empowered. Most of the jokes tend to mm-hmm. be how dumb the guys are about the sex. Mm-hmm. Like they don't understand that the hot women on the dance floor are not the women they're going to have sex with. Uh, a, a line I wrote down that was so good was I, th- I think it's uh, Jackie Earl Haley. And he's like, uh, you know, when we have sex, I don't want you faking anything. If if you don't come, I want to know. And the lady just goes like five dollars extra if I come. <laughs> Yeah, like, is, so thank funny. you for reminding me. I was watching, so I was watching this film at the same time as finishing The Deuce, the TV mm. show The Deuce. So my mm. brain was really in like the idea of sex work and and how to portray that realistically and and empathetically and in a way that is accurate, which is that it's an important service. Um, I loved the little brother character. He's the sure. smartest of the group. He's significantly younger, um, and he saves the day in notable moments oh, of yeah. the film and uh it's great the chemistry the chemistry is really there in this film between these four characters. i think part of the reason he's so good is he doesn't have bad intentions he wants to go to tijuana no. to buy a bunch of fireworks to fireworks. sell to his classmates and he's an entrepreneur yeah and he's like he he discovers a lot of 
the weird, uh, you know, the myths these guys tell each other. They're so afraid. He's getting his seats reupholstered and they're afraid that they're going to stuff them with horse shit. So the, yeah. the kid sits there and the, the mechanic's like, they're making you sit here because they think I'm going to stuff the seats with horse shit. And he's like, yeah. Like, oh, oh, okay. Uh, yeah. So he, he's like, <laughs> he manages to be very canny because he simply goes in without prejudice and is not yeah. on this stupid quest to lose his virginity. Yeah. Like the other three guys, they go into Mexico and they come out kind of changed and not in the ways that they assumed they would be, which is <laughs> fascinating. It's always a good way yeah. to kind of come around from that. But Shelley Long, coming back to Shelley Long, she's really good in this. And I'm trying to... She's really good. So when is Cheers? Like this 1982. is 1982. It's, it's right oh. as Cheers is kind of happening. Okay. So the reason why she left as soon as she did was because it was looking... Left Cheers mm-hmm. as soon as she did is because it was looking like she was going to have a very promising film career. Well, she did and, Beverly uh, Hills. Sure. <laughs> exactly. Um, and a lot of listeners might not know if they're, if they're younger that there used to be a very big difference between a television actor and a film actor. And the film actor was like the high end, that's what you wanted to be. And the television actor was like, yeah, 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 you got it. You got a TV mm. show. Good for you. Which is weird because you actually get more like long-term work with with television. Mm-hmm. But that's there was this weird class system. And so Shelley Long's desire to jump to the mm-hmm. big screen totally made sense of why she would leave one of the greatest mm-hmm. television shows of mm-hmm. all time. And then insert Kirstie Alley. Yeah. Yes. <laughs> I'm trying to think of my we, cheers. We, we got Kirstie yeah. Alley. <laughs> um, but you're right that this Shelley Long performance, because she is so wide-eyed and so innocent to a point, even for a married woman, that she would jump into a car with a bunch of like Teenage, like they're like oh, what, yeah, 17, yeah. 16, yeah, yeah. I think 17, they're like 18? close yeah. to adult, but yeah. I mean, Jack Earl Haley was, I think, only 24 in the film, but he he absolutely looks like oh, a 45 yeah. Well, he had a, yeah, he had a real problem of, I think he he hit so big with Bad News Bears, but he's yeah. just a short guy who looks young. So he didn't really come back as an actor until he was like in his 40s and little children because he looked yeah. weird, frankly. Interesting. But he's got that like Walter Matthau thing mm-hmm. where he was acting old oh, before yes, he was yes, old. Yes. Like, yeah, he's, from, mm-hmm. which is he's cute. still pretty young. Yeah. I mean, he's I, I guess he's Tom Cruise age, but uh, so like 60s, still pretty young. He's in his 60s. But uh, yeah, yeah, it's a he was an interesting looking fellow. You're right. So, yeah. And I mean, Shelley Long's plot is very interesting because her plot is kind of just like she does all this and it just makes her realize like, what am I doing? And yeah, she, she just goes, goes back, back to her, to her life. Life. <laughs> Yeah. There's a Terry Pratchett quote I like very much, which is you show people the price of freedom and they crawl back in the mm. cage. And oh, my God. <laughs> I know. But isn't it, though? But that's it's that's true. a bit of what this is, right? She gets out there and she's like, oh, I need to make my own way. I Now I need to do this. Now I need to do that. That's not what I want for my life. I'm kind of cool with this. There's, a, there's right? an element of sexual liberation in it because I, I and correct me if I'm wrong. I do think there's a part where when she's talking to Tom Cruise's character because he's trying to lose his virginity. I think she mentions that the only man she's ever been with is her husband. Mm. And mm-hmm. so like. Part of her being in Tijuana is to kind of get that confidence back. Like she ends up sleeping with Tom Cruise, which makes her realize that she wants to go back to her husband. And I thought that that was actually quite realistic and nuanced. Not saying that I've done that, but I'm just saying. <laughs> I just think in terms of like if, if sexuality is a spectrum and the way that these kinds of dynamics work, that was like very believable to me. Sure. No, I buy it. I buy all of this. And it's to the point where, like, I would recommend this film. I would, too. Like, there's not many films in this genre sure. that I'd be like, yeah, yeah, that one. Race out and see it. I mean, Porky's, if you're a film student and you want to see, like, you're, if you're a Bob Clark completionist and want to see the birth yeah. of a genre, go for it. But um, but this one is, like, it's, it's really something special. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it it's a- absolutely is. And I think... 
it's all like a very interesting look at all these actors. Uh, it's a very interesting portrayal of Tom Cruise because he's kind of a tight-laced weirdo, which we now know he pretty much is. Watch it. Well, I think that's everything for this week. I want to thank Cameron Maitland once again. Oh, thank you, Becky. And uh, Alicia Fletcher. Always a pleasure. Thank you. Thanks, Becky. And I think that's just about everything. So you can join us in two weeks to find out which iconic 80s hit movie had its star learn how to professionally weld, only to have the director tell them to do it wrong because it looked cooler. Oh, Hollywood. That's coming up in two weeks. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the A Year in Film podcast from Hollywood Suite. If you enjoyed the show, please remember to rate and review us on your podcast platform. Want to chat with us and find more great content? Find us on Facebook, Instagram, Twitter, at Hollywood Suite. The home of the movies that shaped the 70s, 80s, 90s, and 2000s, Hollywood Suite lets you experience movies the way they were meant to be seen. Uncut and commercial-free on four HD channels and on demand. Learn how you can subscribe today at hollywoodsuite.ca. The A Year in Film podcast is hosted and produced by Becky Shrimpton, Alicia Fletcher, and Cam Maitland. Supervising producer is Ryan Maines. Executive producers are David Kynes and Julie Kumaria. Creative consultant is Emily Gagne. Audio engineering by Kevin Lipset. Until next time. Don't worry about it, ma'am. Cujo won't hurt him. He likes kids. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade.